Hi guys, welcome back to Box Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, we're talking about a song I think I can confidently say every single one of you knows. Hava Nagila, whether performed in a wedding, bar mitzvah, or even in an Olympic floor routine, it's instantly recognizable as the anthem of modern American Jewry. But how many of us actually know anything about this song? Roberta Grossman knows a lot. Grossman is a documentary filmmaker, and over the past three years, she has crossed the globe to trace the song's origins and its rise to the very top of the Jewish music canon. Now, her film, Chava Nagila, the movie, is to have its theatrical release. Grossman is speaking today with guest host Rebecca Sofer about what she's learned about the song some of us love and some of us love to hate. Roberta Grossman, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Aside from the fact that you're Jewish and have probably found yourself in the middle of hundreds of horrors throughout your life, what inspired you to pursue this project? Well, I think what inspired me to pursue this project is that I'm Jewish and I found myself in the middle of hundreds of horrors throughout my life. So not to be contrary, but when I was a kid growing up, I was uh, in Los Angeles. I was part of a very culturally uh, identified but religiously assimilated Jewish family. And those Hava moments, you know, at weddings and bar mitzvahs where the band would start playing the song, everybody would get up and I would be holding hands with my mother and my grandmother, my grandpa and seeing, you know, all of our relatives around us. It was so powerful. I felt so tribal. And of course, because of when I grew up, I thought that the song must have come from Anatevka, um, from Filler on the Roof. Um, but I knew I felt really Jewish at those moments. And then, you know, later in life, much, much later in life, mm-hmm. um, I was walking around one day and I really had one of those like thought bubbles or dialogue, you know, bubbles over my head where I really thought, what is Havana And I had no idea. And for almost three years, almost until the very end, we called the film Havana What is it? Mm-hmm. Because these are my questions, you know, was it a hundred years old or a thousand years old? Did somebody sit down to write it or was it traditional? Uh, what, I didn't even know what the words meant. Sounds like a very Jewish working title, actually. Um, yeah, it, it was meant to be. It was meant to be uh, a very, a, a very Jewish title. Um, But I like the new one better. Now, um, in the course of the film, you speak with ethnomusicologists, with wedding musicians, with Israeli pioneers of music and dance, but also with a lot of famous folks, including Leonard Nimoy of Star Trek fame and indie pop musician Regina Spector. Genius. Harry Belafonte. Were you surprised at all that these people were not only willing, but it seemed like excited to talk to you about this song? Well, it was kind of a, uh, that was a journey in itself because I first started out with a very silly idea of interviewing every famous Jewish person I could about their experiences with Hava Nagila. And that went nowhere. I mean, really nowhere. But when I realized that the appropriate thing to do was to interview people for whom Hava Nagila had some real meaning in their careers, it was very, very easy. Um, it was not painful um, to reach out to Harry Belafonte or Regina Spector or Connie Francis, Glenn Campbell. They all immediately, upon hearing what the film was about, said yes, and then were so lovely and so gracious in their interviews. Um, it was really, really a highlight uh, of making the film. So most of us, I think, if forced to make an educated guess, would say Hava Nagila is an Israeli folk song, what with the Hebrew lyrics and all. But as you show in the film, it's a little more complicated than that. That's what I love about Hava Nagila. When we set out to make the film, um, 
I had this fundraising pitch that Hava was a portal into 200 years of Jewish history and culture and spirituality. And the really fantastic thing is, is that it tr- turned out to be true. Um, it wasn't a pitch, it was the reality. I mean, obviously, I, th- I, I had an inkling that it was true, but I, I just, as we kept on going and going and going deeper and deeper and deeper, I kept on being surprised. Oh, you, you know, Hava was like Zelig. Oh, Hava was there, or Hava was here, or Hava was here at the sort of a, a, a key flowering moment of the Hasidic movement. Hava was there and became, you know, a, a part of the conscious creation of a uh, Hebrew folk culture in Palestine. Hava was there during the burgeoning of bar mitzvah culture in the United States. So, I mean, Hava really has accrued so much meaning in history um, along its uh, very complex life, what I like to think of as from, you know, its journey from Ukraine to YouTube. Um, Hava really uh, has a very complex and layered history. Can you actually lay out some of those origins for sure, us that yeah. you yeah, go absolutely. into in the film? So um, the, the film Hava Nagila, the movie, is really a journey or a quest. We call it a Hava quest in the film. And basically it follows Hava from its origins to the present day. Hava began as a Hasidic nigun. Um, we know that it was sung in the town of Sadagora in Ukraine. We don't know that it originated there. We just know that it was sung there. Can you tell our listeners what a nigun is? Oh, of course. A nigun, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nigun is a, uh, a Hasidic, basically it's a wordless musical prayer. Um, probably most Jews are familiar with nigunim, even if they don't associate that word with it. It's the die, 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 bum, 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 bum stuff. Um, so it is really considered a way to reach God. So it began as a Hasidic nigun. And the reason that we know that is because some of the uh, Sadagora Hasidim got a little bit sick of pogroms and poverty, and they moved to emigrated to Palestine before World War One, around 1905. And there, they met up with Abraham V. Edelson, who is the father of Jewish ethnomusicology. And he was going all around, basically Jerusalem, you know, with a very heavy recording equipment, or sometimes just recording, you know, transcribing by hand. Um, and he wanted to record every single scrap of Jewish music. And in that was a wonderful time and place to do it because mm-hmm. people were beginning to come from all over the world. Jewish people beginning to come to Palestine, to Jerusalem. So as in part of his travels in his collection of thousands and thousands and thousands of, of tunes, of uh, melodies from uh, Eastern Europe, from Yemenite Jews, from Greek Jews, Moroccan Jews, whoever would talk to him, he encountered the Sadagora Hasidim and he said, give me some of your stuff. Mm-hmm. And they sang the nigun for him that would become Havana Gila, and he, in that case, transcribed it. And then in 1918, with the Balfour Declaration and the British taking control of Palestine, there was this hopeful moment for a Jewish state. And he was asked, Idelson was asked to put on a concert in Jerusalem, and he wanted a really great special song. So he you know, went rifling through all of his really literally thousands of, 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 of musical uh, notations and came up with Havana Gila and put words to it. There's some controversy about whether he put words to it or his student Moshe Nathanson put words to it. Um, but then he performed at this concert and just became like an overnight hit in in, in Chalutzik, Palestine, where, you know, um, very handsome young Jewish pioneers uh, in uh, shirtless and in shorts and their female companions were dancing the Hora uh, on Kibbutzim and Hava became married to the Hora. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I, I read um, something where Edelson said that the day after that concert, he was shocked by how many people were singing and humming that song right, around so you Jerusalem. Heard, yeah, you heard it on the streets in Jerusalem. Yeah. Hava is obviously a very catchy tune. It's catchy. It's I catchy. will give it that. <laughs> <laughs> Roberta, the song then finds its way to the Jewish community in the United States. Right. What led to its popularity? Oh, there's, there's a one-word answer to what led to Hava's popularity, and that's um, Harry. To be less familiar, um, uh, Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte um, explained to me that 
in during the the folk revival movement, he was around Greenwich Village and going to Hootenannies, and he said it was at Hootenannie that he first heard the song Havana Gila, and he made a, a really he made a decision to make his repertoire one of folk music from around the world, and so Hava fit in very naturally. And he told me um, I was very surprised. He told me that the two most important songs in his entire career were Deo and Havana Gila. I have to say that that interview, that particular interview, moved me more than any other in the film, especially his comparison of Hava to black spiritual music and that undeniable feeling of hope and joy and yearning it delivers. Did you have any idea of what to expect going into that conversation? I had no idea what to expect going into that conversation, but in retrospect, I should have because he has been such a lifelong uh, activist and elegant, um, eloquent spokesperson for whatever causes, especially civil rights that he's been involved in. Um, I have to say that I've done, I don't know, hundreds of interviews in my life. And the interview with Harry Belafonte, I think, was the best, most gratifying interview that I ever had. He was, first of all, he stayed for a really long time. Um, he was so generous. He was so articulate. He was so brilliant. And he said so many deep and profound things that just deepened the film and deepened the story of Havana Gila. When he left, I, I literally jumped up and down and, and, and sort of did a woohoo, woohoo, and jumping up and down. I was so excited um, because I knew that he had made Hava, made me understand Hava and would make the audience understand the depth, um, the, the importance of Hava and his repertoire and why, and, and answered one of the key questions in the film was like, why is Hava so uh, popular? Why does Hava survive? And when you hear Harry Balfani talk about the song in that way, in terms of spirituality, it really, um, it, it really, it really helped to explain why Hava is, is a perennial, a perennial song. So let's listen a bit to Harry's version. Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila Venesmaha, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila Venesmaha, Hava Naranina, Hava Naranina, Hava Naranina Venesmaha, Hava Naranina. In my next life, I want to come back as Harry Balfani, to be that beautiful, that intelligent, to have had such a fascinating life and be such a great guy. I hope that, Harry, wherever you are, you get a chance to hear that, and also that I would like to come back as your wife. <laughs> <laughs> Roberta, there's an interesting pivot point in the song's evolution when a backlash begins. In 1961, Bob Dylan sings his own 30-second version of Talkin' Havana Gila Blues, Where Else? Down in the Village. He introduced it as a foreign song I learned in Utah and did an impressive job mangling the song. Let's take a listen. Ha. Ba, 
Havana Gila Havana Gila Orlai That is some impressive yodeling. You know, Josh Kuhn, the very brilliant and wonderful Josh Kuhn, one of the scholars in the film, um, he says that uh, Bob Dylan butchers the song. And it was really Josh Kuhn who pointed out to me why, you know, in his opinion, why this is so important. He thinks it's the ultimate expression of Jewish ambivalence, and I, I have to, I tend to agree with him. Can you describe a little about what is going on in young American Jews at this point in the U.S.? One of the main things that I wanted to figure out in making this film, and one of the real revelations for me personally in making the film, I wanted to find out why klezmer musicians hated Havana Gila with such passion. I really didn't understand it, especially because once I realized that the song began as a Hasidic nigun, having its roots, roots in Eastern Europe, it didn't make sense to me that klezmer musicians would so proudly um, and so rotely reject Havana Gila, so I wanted to find out why. So I talked to really wonderful klezmer musicians like Lawrence Glamberg and other members of the Klezmatics, and my favorite curmudgeon in the world, Henry Sapoznik, who, um, who started and runs Klezcamp, and I began to understand why klezmer musicians hate Havana Gila. And from what I understand, after statehood, Israeli culture became American Jewish culture. And so there was a sort of a discontinuity between what had happened before statehood and what happened after. And it played into the discontinuity, the radical rupture in Jewish culture in Eastern Europe as a result of the Holocaust. So that instead of American Jews, many of whom my grandparents included had come before, you know, had come at the turn of the century and had come with our Eastern European Jewish heritage, instead of celebrating that or learning that or learning klezmer music, what, what I was learning was Hebrew folk songs. Um, and I'm not sorry that I did. I love Hebrew folk songs. I love Hebrew folk dance. I, I love I love Israel, um, uh, and especially I love the uh, the, the dream, the Chalutzic dream of Israel. Um, so klezmer musicians realized, oh my, you know, I'm not, as Lawrence Lambert says in the film, I'm not Israeli. My family didn't come from Israel. They came from Ukraine. So the klezmer musicians wanted to learn that music, the music that came from Eastern Europe, and it was a klezmer revival. It was a revival of that music. But klezmer musicians would go to perform at weddings of bar mitzvahs, and they would want to, to enrich the uh, the celebrants with their deep knowledge of, of Jewish music. But all that the celebrants wanted to hear was Havana Gila. Mm -hmm. So it yeah. became a very um, uh, unhappy relationship between klezmer musicians and Havana Gila. It represented the failure of Jewish culture in America. You know... What strikes me about the song, now that I've heard a few dozen versions, is how different it sounds depending on who sings it. At its worst, for sure, it can be pounding and grating, let's be honest. But some versions are, and I can't believe I'm actually going to say this, kind of sexy, you know? I think that archival clip of Belafonte that you include singing the song with Danny Kaye where they're both sitting on stools next to each other... Maybe it's just me, but it seems to have almost an erotic charge to it. I've never really had the opportunity to use the word erotic and Hava Nagila in the same sentence, so this is really this is really a great moment for me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think that if, if uh, Harry Belafonte were singing Happy Birthday or a song from Barney, it would be erotic. True. But I, I have to say that I... I I feel like it does evoke a wide spectrum of human emotions. It does evoke a wide spectrum of human emotions, and that's why the song persists. And that's what I hope to bring across in the film, is that Havana Gila is uh, a lot more than, than meets the ear. That Havana Gila, because of its uh, long history, it really is a 
stand-in for the Jewish journey, and that Hava Nagila's journey is, in particular, the American Jewish journey. And Hava starts out really strong, and by the time uh, it gets to America, it has a great success, and then it loses itself, it loses its way. Um, Hava becomes assimilated, Hava loses its sense of direction, loses its core, loses its roots. And then the, we sort of, we, and then we ask the question in the film, and but what what's next for Hava? And I think the question is, what's next for the Jewish people? And I, I there was a a little bit of a missionary intent in the film that I wanted people, um, my kids, to not walk away from the table. Basically, presenting Hava and Jewish life and Jewish culture and Jewish history as a fantastic banquet. And I didn't want you know my kids to walk away from the table saying, "I'm not hungry." Mm-hmm. And I also have come to believe or believe from the outset or else it wouldn't have really been worth spending three years doing this if it was just something um, um, campy or kitsch it wouldn't have been worth doing I really believe that there's a spiritual nugget in Havana Gila mm-hmm. I think there's some explanation as to why this song even 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 though it's so overplayed and hackneyed and, and we so love to make fun of it and hate it um, it, there is something in Havana Gila that persists. People have told me um, at film festivals that, oh, you know, my daughter was just recently married. She married a non-Jew. And the only thing that they did that was Jewish in the wedding was they played Havana Gila. And it's mm-hmm. said as, as something sad. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that. But I also think it's something good because, you know, it's like the balloons going up. And if you just catch the, the, the string of the balloon at the end, you know, maybe you get pulled up too. And I think that, that Hava, uh, you know, is like the seed that has the memory of the tree, if you mm-hmm. forgive me being a little bit lofty about it. But if you plant that, that seed, it can still bloom because it has so much packed into it. Roberta, as we spoke about earlier, you offer up countless versions of Hava in the film, sometimes in rapid-fire succession. Clips off YouTube of hip-hop groups, Texas cowboys, a South Korean choir, a Baltic girl band fiddlers in gold lame. I mean, you name it, it's there. Is there one version you came across in the course of your research that's a personal favorite? I really, well, personal favorite that is in the film is Connie Francis's version. I really love that. It's just really joyful. Um, personal favorites that aren't in the film, there's one um, by a group called Abraham Inc., which is a cross between funk, mu- funk musicians and klezmer musicians, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a really good version of Hava. Abraham Inc., let's go out with that one. Roberta Grossman, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Roberta Grossman is a Los Angeles-based director and producer. Her latest documentary, Hava Nagila, the movie, opens in theaters March 1st. For more information, come to tabletmag.com. While you're there, we'd love you to post a comment and just let us know what you thought about today's podcast. Fox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Rebecca Sofer. Thanks so much for listening.